You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name's Harrison Pitt. I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest, Louise Perry, journalist and author most recently of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now, Louise, um, one of the main points you make in that book is that our um, very permissive sexual culture is increasingly underserving young men uh, and young women, and men and women generally, in fact. But um, I, I wonder whether you think, as many people do, particularly in, uh, after, after uh, the recent Pride Month where we had tr you know, trans activists in the streets saying, we're queer, we're here, we're coming for your children, whether you wonder, uh, whether you think that our, um, our highly transgressive sexual culture is also um, threatening the innocence and education of, of our children, or do you think that that's a, that's a moral panic? as some people claim. Um, yeah, the term moral panic is super useful, isn't it, for anyone who, uh, <laughs> who seeks to kind of neuter criticisms of any phenomenon you want to name. Mm. Um, on left and right, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a very flexible term, very yeah. useful for all, all sides. Um, so I think, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it's not original to me, but it has been said by many people that the real losers of the sexual revolution were not men or women, they were children. Mm. And I think that's true. I mean, one of the things that I write about a lot is uh, divorce and family breakdown and how that affects children. I'm afraid the data is in and it's very unambiguous. Um, children do much better when they're raised with both their parents at home. And I think it's now about half of British children now are going to reach the age of 15 without both parents at home. Um, normally that means dads not being there. Mm. Um, there are all sorts of important correlates between fatherlessness and mm. you know higher teen pregnancy rates for girls, higher imprisonment rates for boys, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think in terms of the longer story of the sexual revolution, it's there's not much light to be seen in terms the, the of the data's in, so to speak. Yeah, in terms of the outcomes for children. You know, obviously these things have trade-offs. It mm. is clearly the case, you know, now it is easier it's more socially acceptable now for, for women in some circumstances to leave abusive partners, for instance. That's a good thing for those women, for those children. But I'd say that if we're totting up the effects on children in the pluses and minuses column, there are more in the minuses by some distance. Yeah, I, I remember reading one of um, Theodore Dalrymple's books. I think it might even have been um, might even have been Life at the Bottom, which was written as as long ago as. I don't know, 2003, it feels like long ago now. Um, and he's, uh, one of the statistics which just completely leaped out at me from the page when I read that was that children in Britain are more likely to have a television set in their room than a father in the home, which tells you everything you need to know about how both overindulgence and neglect can actually go, to, to, can go with one another. But uh, I, I suppose the thing that I'm wondering, particularly off the back of pride and, in, in, uh, and um, you know, the, the way in which uh, the, the growing moral zealotry of the LGBT plus movement all the rest of it, it's not so much that children are being written out of the picture anymore, as was the case with the more liberalizing tendencies of, of the sexual revolution. Increasingly, there's an urge not only to you know, sideline children, but to, but to program them in a, mm -hmm. in a particular to way. Evangelize to evangelize in a particular yeah, way of thinking, which true. is entirely transgressive and, in fact, proselytizing and not neglectful. It's sort of attentive, but in the wrong way. Well, these people also have like a strategic advantage because they have no children of their own to take care of. So they've got plenty of time to go after somebody else's. Yes. And they have a drive, too, to, I mean, everybody kind of wants to impart you know, themselves onto this world and have a bit of a legacy. And if you can't have, have your own, you've got to kind of find a way to, to weasel your way in somewhere. I mean, why do you think, Louise, that this is becoming more and more of a, a, a 
moral battleground over kind of the, the, the fate of the of our kids. Uh, my hypothesis here is that people can really sense that we're at a pivotal moment and that basically whoever captures the next generation is inevitably going to win out. Like we're, we're kind of at an inflection moment. Uh, w would you agree with that? Do you think that it really is kind of coming down to the wire here? Um, I'm not normally famous for my optimism, <laughs> but actually I think in this instance that Okay, I, I agree with you that the, the crucial way in which progressivism, broadly defined as a political movement, spreads is through converting children, typically converting other people's children, because progressivism is also very profoundly antinatalist and is also associated with all sorts of other lifestyle things which lead to lower birth rates, like being urban and highly educated and all this kind of stuff. So, yes, progressivism can only spread through conversion and until recently has done a very good job of yeah, doing that. Medically, not genetically. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I was just uh, taking my son, who's two, to the local children's library, and I cannot tell you how much propaganda is plastered <laughs> on the walls of this library. And they do things like they put the, the really sort of woke books like facing forward yeah. for the children like to read. Like in Waterstones, they do that in Greasley, don't they? Yeah. Children's bookshops, children's libraries are amazing uh -huh. centres of, of propaganda efforts. And thus far, my son ignores those books and just heads straight for yes. like the Gruffalo. And so thus far, he's, he's ignoring it. Is that your it. influence, or do you think there's something in, in, innately wholesome about that? Who knows? Who knows <laughs> it will last as well. Um, but I actually think contrary to many other conservative commentators that I think that the progressive thing is going to end up being a historical flash in the pan yeah. for the simple reason of differential birth rates mm -hmm. the yeah, fact that if, so until now yes progressives have been able to convert other people's children I think that that strategy will not be effective for very much longer just because the the difference between birth rates of highly religious conservative minorities versus progressives are so extreme I think that has to run out of road eventually, mm. which is not to say that all of the work stuff is going to go away by many, any means. But on this particular point, when on it this comes particular, to, yeah. yeah, when it comes to things like drag queen, drag queen story hour, whatever, I think yes. that, that that I I suspect that we're going to be recalling it as a funny and temporary yes. phenomenon. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that way of thinking. I mean, I, I actually I think that. Um, the, the, the more you know, uh, racialized versions of politi identity politics probably have a longer shelf life. Right. But yes. when it comes to things yes. like 101 genders and all, all, yes, and, yes, and, all yes. and all that sort of stuff, because there's very direct conflict as well between sort of woke is a big umbrella, progressivism mm. is a big umbrella. The difference between say race identity politics and drag queen story hour is profound. Yes. And actually, those two factions kind yeah. of hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> actually, push <laughs> comes to shove. Yes. So I think that yeah, I think just on the basis of. Um, yes birth rates plummeting yes. among the people who are most keen on Drag Queen Story Hour. I think, give it five years, ten years, it's gone. I, also, go on, I, do, I do think that zealotry is, like, people talk a lot about hitting a quote-unquote peak woke, and I do think that we're nowhere close to that yet, because I think that when people's kind of backs are against the wall ideologically, um, they're only going to become more kind of shrill and hysterical as they, you know, gradually kind of are phased out of the cultural conversation. Um, so I do kind of worry because I, I think, um, as I've stated on the show many times, dedicated minorities can get a lot done. This is uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb's famous kind of insight here. If if they're organized and if they're unwilling to compromise, and mm. I think there will be a kind of a peak and then a reduction of of this kind of a LGBT mania. Um, mm. But watching that kind of unfold is going to be even more kind of deranged than what we're currently seeing. I do agree with that. Um, but I do think that one uh, potential sign of hope 
is the fact that we're already seeing, you know, slightly, we're, we're seeing a, a pretty well organized pushback in, 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 at an institutional level against much of this stuff. And so I think Nicholas, uh, what's his name again, Nicholas? Taleb, yeah. Taleb, and he talks about how, you know, veg, a vegetarian in a family, for example, because a vegetarian will hold to their vegetarianism more strongly in, in, in all likelihood than the rest of the family holds to being carnivores. It only takes one, one pretty strident vegetarian in a family to convince the mother that, well, okay, maybe I should just, you know, cook vegetarian uh, food for everyone. That sort of thing can happen. But it's, it's especially likely to happen when you have conservatives, and I think conservatives have been guilty of this, if you're using that, using that term reasonably, reasonably, reasonably broadly, of uh, showing far too much trust that customary institutions, things like, I don't know, the police, like the teaching profession, these sorts of things, will be their allies and will necessarily represent them rather than, than be subject to ideological capture. And it's actually one of the points which, like, well in advance of um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, 100 years or so before, is something that Alexis de Tocqueville writes about in, in Democracy in America, about how it's, it's incredibly important for, in order for uh, the, the, the democratic ethos to survive, it's very important that people prize a sense of civic agency and civic engagement because if they just tune out into their own little private enclaves of self-interest you know and in, in our own age we have things like Netflix we have things like pornography pe pe people people are satisfied being free in these very retrograde ways what you actually get is though precisely those kinds of minorities capturing because they're much more zealous capturing these what, what, what used to be these vehicles of civic agency for ordinary people and completely subverting them in another direction. And you get what Tocqueville calls a sort of soft despotism in which people aren't being brutalized in the way that they would have been by Catherine the Great, for example, or still less Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or that sort of thing. But they do feel increasingly powerless in the face of bureaucracies. So one thing that I think is very important to do, and I think the NCF is actually doing a very good job on this with our NCF locals, for example, trying to make sure that there are these you know, well-organized branches in communities so that, you know, it's, I was at an, an NCF locals the other day in Norwich, and one of the points uh, made there was that we should get, get people in WhatsApp groups. We should we should have a sort of rapid response team in the local area, so that if a school's going through some you know work guff or if some <laughs> if some street's about to change its name from Gladstone, from Gladstone Road to I don't know uh, Diane Abbott Road or something like that, people can actually organise and and uh, reinvigorate that sense of political agency and civic agency, which is really important for democracy to thrive. Yeah, I think trying to reverse engineer sort of like Burkean, like little platoons or whatever is, um, it's a good idea, but it ultimately kind of falls in the face of what we should be trying to do, which is to promote young families, which is something obviously, Luis, that you've been kind of leading the way on. Um, in, in the same vein of kind of prohibiting vice here, do you think, as some states in America are starting to do, that banning porn in Britain would actually go a long way for this? In terms of encouraging natalism? Yes, exactly. Well, I'm, I'm definitely, you, I'm sure you'll have heard this idea that one of the reasons that men are apparently terrified to talk to women nowadays, or Zoomer men, so I'm told, is that um, they're so worried about Me Too, they're so worried about getting in trouble, oh, yeah, being inappropriate, yeah, whatever. I don't really yeah, buy I that, no. I think I know where you're going. Really, I, I disagree. I, I think guys are actually some of that. generally pretty worried about it. Maybe. I mean, this is also dating apps. Is that happening at the same time? So that's also changed norms around approaching. It might be worth making a distinction, because I do think that some, there's some, I will let you finish, I promise, but I, I, think, there is some <laughs> <laughs> I think there is some anxiety over, over that, but I think it's more, the Me Too is probably having an effect on men being cautious about when they're alone with women. 
but at a bar, for example, when there's really no excuse to be too worried about because people are there, you know, you're not. It's going to be difficult to be accused of something that sees TV there. There are other factors which bear which bear on men's minds when they're doing that sort of thing. What do you think that those are? I so I think going back to Emma's point about porn, yeah. I do think that there's probably an extent to which some of these young men think, why bother? Yep. Because I have guaranteed sexual release available yep. through any digital device you yep. care to name, name right, and. I'm sure that that kind of lessens the, um, I mean, this theory has also been made about premarital sex, I've got to say. There's also a theory that when men have access to premarital sex, or they don't have to make themselves marriageable or whatever, not only do they no longer have that incentive mm -hmm. to make themselves marriageable in all sorts of ways, holding down a job, buying property, mm -hmm. whatever, but they also don't have that sense of like sexual frustration, which actually seems mm -hmm. potentially <laughs> to drive a lot of <laughs> good innovation, pro-social behaviour, you know, yes. probably antisocial behaviour too, but there's a kind of, there's probably a, a degree of energy, positive energy in young yes. men is being dissipated. And there's less pressure on, on men to cultivate that sense of virtue which would make them marriageable in the first yes, place. Yes, that's definitely, I'm yeah. sure, going on partly. Yes. Um, so, so, so banning porn then? Oh, we should totally. Porn, yeah. I mean, there are loads of reasons to ban porn. That's just one of them. That's just one, that's, that's just one of them. <laughs> I mean, it's a long way, unfortunately, from being in the open window at the moment in the UK. No. But, you know, Iceland banned porn. Yes, did they really? Yeah, and, it's, they did. and I think what happened in the US state, was it Utah that banned porn and got Virginia in trouble? Virginia just did it too. Really? really and got in say. trouble. Yeah. Pornhub porn were, 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 were um, trying to penalise them. Like, I, can't, I can't remember the exact details of that case, but, you know, the, the porn lobby, turns out, is actually pretty. Pretty profound political. Canadian, it is, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. One of Canada's gifts to the world, mind you. Yeah. Um, Do you think it has a relationship to, 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 to natalism or otherwise, as Evan uh, suggests it might? Um, natalism is a hard one to pin down. Mm. So, this is the, the, the book I'm writing right now is called The Case of Having Kids, and it's sort of about the flip side of the first book. Um, mm. In that it's about the first book was about the pill breaking the link between sex and reproduction, and it was about the sex side. This is about the reproduction side. So clearly, mm. I think falling birth rates, so obviously historically, mm. is linked partly to more reliable contraception. The question, though, still is why are some people living in a world with the pill available and still having heaps of kids, and some people are not? Mm. And that's the mystery. And it is a surprisingly difficult sociological question. Is there any evidence for preferences for fertility and large families being genetically inherited? Yes, so that's probably some of it. And so we should probably expect, we should probably expect at some point for our current population bottleneck to end mm. and for people who have whatever polygenic trait leads to Natalism. broodiness yeah. to come to inherit the earth. At who that's going to be and at what point that's going to mm. happen, we don't know. Do you, do you think that it's likely that in the coming years we will see our fertility rate rise above the requisite 2.1 for, for, for replacement rates? you think that will, that what you describe as that population bottleneck, you think that that will be broadened out a little bit? I mean, it depends on who you mean by we, because the people who are, you know, there are still, let's say, traditional Catholics who are having lots of kids. Yeah. There aren't very many of them. Mm. Mormons still have pretty high birth rates. The mm. Amish have super high birth rates. I don't think it's any accident either that the, the only Western country, last time I checked, with a, with a fertility rate above replacement is Israel, yeah. where, of course, the Orthodox uh, Jewish communities there, and even the, the slightly less Orthodox Jewish communities, but nevertheless, they feel that impetus to breed, are doing a lot of the heavy lifting there, of course. Yeah, Much so more than the people in Tel Aviv are, who are just partying, I think. So it's mostly the ultra-Orthodox, ultra just yeah. here in London, ultra-Orthodox still having kids. It's like, um, six, it's like six or something on average, yeah, in terms of something really, ridiculous, really high, something ridiculous. Really, really high TFR. Yes. Um, but then you do also, in Israel, have a surprising high fertility even among secular Israelis. Yeah. Mm. It's like slightly over-replacement, yes. so it's not 
so enormous numbers. Maybe there's yeah. an extent to which when you have, maybe um, there's a there's a knock-on effect and a sort of domino effect in that way, whereby when you you find yourself amid, maybe you're not an ultra-Orthodox Jewish person yourself, maybe you're not even that Orthodox Jewish, but when you find yourself in a community which where that is the norm, you're, you are going to imitate your environment in spite yeah. of your own secular priors. Yeah. Probably, yeah. This is what I think about Hungary, who's managed to raise their TFR from like 1.1 to like 1.5, and that's only in the last like 10 or so years. So yes. I think that there are, there's kind of the, the first girls through the door there who have mm. kids, and then there's going to be yeah. all their friends who say like, oh, you can have kids and still be like a, a human being, you know, and have like an mm. actual kind of life, and it's actually not that bad, and I kind of want one and they will then follow on. So I think a lot of these things will will compound and there will be there sort is of Cambrian explosion. That network effect is 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 documented in the research mm. that if your, say, sister has a baby, you're more likely to have a baby if your sister doesn't, yada, yada. Mm. So uh, partly that's because maybe you see a template which seems appealing, partly because just babies are cute yes. and maybe if you, you know, just like inspires <laughs> natalist feeling. Um, I mean, another thing going on with Israel, of course, is enormous existential threat. Yeah. yeah, which probably does. That's a huge factor. Concentrates the mind as well. That's also why they yeah. have they have an incredibly acute sense in policy terms of like maintaining their own demographic balance for that reason because they don't want to be, um, they, you know, they 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 don't want the the, the, the distinctly Jewish nature of Israel to be diluted by a, by, yeah, by liberal internationalism. Yeah, there's like no that. room for naivete under the Iron Dome. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Which is why I'm so. I'm not entirely dismissive of the argument that people are having fewer children because of London housing, because mm. you know various pressures are on the young. I take intergenerational inequality very seriously, and by the way, it's partly a consequence of, it's largely a consequence of falling birth rates, the fact that we're living in a boomerocracy, right? Mm -hmm. But equally, you know, people have babies in in war zones. People have mm -hmm. babies in the most difficult circumstances, we're all descended from people who had 10 kids in a two bedroom mud hut. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. the idea that people, young professionals in London can't afford to have children, mm. is not true. What is true is that it's now difficult to maintain your lifestyle, which may mean living in a small flat, etc., and have children. Mm. You have to choose. And I think that one of the errors that government make in terms of policy is, is basically what I would ideally want in terms of our tax structure, in yeah. particular, is to make it so that having children is a is a is net neutral financially. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Which is a long way from yes. being at the moment. At the moment, it's the dumbest financial decision you can make. <laughs> mm. Which is partly also because of the fact that the welfare state, you know, collectivizes the benefits of having children yes. and doesn't incentivize individuals to have children. I think there's also a, like an immediacy aspect to it, where I don't know, you can call it social media, you can call it just living in a endless news cycle um, that we're kind of constantly immersed in, um, people no longer can look even like six months ahead. And when you tell somebody like, look, if you want to be taken care of in your 60s by your 25 year old children, like you basically need to have a kid by the time that you are like 30, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of a, a, a lot of this is sounds kind of selfish, but it's, it's true. I'll make the submission is that I changed my mind in a large part when I had about having kids. I didn't think I wanted them for a very long time. When I realized that at the end of my life, I would either be taken care of by my children or by someone else's. And people should look up the abuse rates in nursing homes and see. Uh, or indeed not at all, Yeah. right? Because. You might not be taken care of at all, you mean. Yes, yeah, yeah. because it, it may be, it, 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 I don't think the state are gonna be able to afford it. Hmm. Just realistically. Yes. It's already, we already have a punishingly expensive health and social care system and it's already apparent to everyone that the NHS is faltering. 
um, to put it mildly. So I think the idea that any of us are going to look forward to state pensions yeah. and sort of full service NHS and social care, I think, yeah. is for the birds. I don't think that's if I'm happen. not If I'm not mistaken, Louise, you are, are you a new mother yourself? I have one two-year-old. Yeah, one two-year-old, okay. Uh, why do you think you bucked the, tr the antinatalist trend? It's an interesting question. I got married quite young. Okay. And uh, that's one of the things they found in Hungary, actually, that, mm. that when people are incentivized to get married, from whatever tax breaks, but however you want to design policy, mm. um, that predicts having children. Quite mm. people, people do seem to have that sequence it's quite firmly embedded. Step, kind of. Yeah, and I, and to your point, Evan, about um, people not looking six months in the future, I think people have always done that. I think that's what human beings are like. I don't mm. think that we've ever, on an individual level, been all that great at planning, which is why we've historically had social norms. In institutions in place, Which do the work so for us exactly, so that people don't have to plan because not, they're bad at that. As Burke would have put it, we're, we're not sort of thrown onto our own private stock of reason. We draw from the common lot yeah. so mm. that is enshrined in social yeah. norms and all these and practices and infrastructure, this sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas increasingly today, it's sold. You make the decisions. You choose. You know, you're, you're you know, you're a sovereign little god unto yourself. And who, who, who is the state, or who is society, or who is history, or who is nature to tell you otherwise? That's that's sort of the prevailing liberal. You know, self-making, self-authoring ethos in which we and that's we what, move. not what humans are actually like, Indeed, right? Not, With no. maybe a few tiny exceptions. Yes. And overwhelmingly, people who are ending up not having children, it's normally not because they really don't want to. And I'm not in the business of telling people who really don't want to have children that they should. Yes. I mean, Probably. not just for their sakes, but for the sake of the children, Indeed. right? Yeah. Um, what's much, much more common is people who are vaguely ambivalent yeah. and the right moment doesn't come up, and they yeah. don't really seek the right moment, and then they reach the point where they're like, oh, hang on, this this, this never ended up happening. Um, because we don't have those that social template in place that would encourage people to hit milestones at certain stages. Mm. Um, and when you leave people to their own devices, they are being kind of apathetic tends to be the default. Sort of listlessness. But why wasn't yeah. that the case for you? Sorry. I'd, 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 I'd quite oh, like, I quite like, you, you don't have a, th mm. a grand theory of yourself. No, I mean, I really, <laughs> I can theory of myself, that's the next yeah. That's the next one. I don't know, except to say that I, re I, I really like children. I've always really liked really? children. And I, like, I used to work as a nanny. Okay. You know, I've always, I've always known that I wanted to have children. Um, I didn't know quite how much I wanted to have heaps of children until I had one. Oh, really? Because mm. actually now having, the biggest difference in your life is obviously going from zero to one. That's the thing that just changes everything. Yeah. And then, as everyone says, and they're right, going from one to two to three to four actually yes. doesn't change very much. Mm. And once you get into the swing of things, you know. That's interesting. So you, you weren't from a family which, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm from a big Catholic family and practically everyone has six kids. And so it's always been, like, it, it's, it's never occurred to me that I won't try and imitate that trend because that you it's, it, because it's such a lovely thing growing up as well to have loads and loads of cousins and loads and loads of brothers it, like with, with to use a modern buzzword it exposes you to the, the the diversity of human personality and it's actually incredibly instructive in that way and I, uh, I found it very um, very formative and educational and I think it's I think it's made me better at interacting with people than I might otherwise have been so it's always been it's always been kept since I've regarded that as such a gift it was always for me it was always going to be the case that I was going to want that for my children as much as I had it myself but you you, you didn't you, yeah. you just found them ultra cute no so I grew up secular kind yeah. of like me and my husband both actually secular Christian-ish kind yeah. of background um, we're both one of two so no there's no there's no tradcat lineage that we are <laughs> maybe we're starting one but we're not yeah, we're not continuing one back, yeah. I see. no so I mean which is also in a sense why I feel 
why I have, why I write so much for a kind of um, um, progressive apostate audience mm. because I, I am a progressive mm. apostate and I also can see a situation where I wouldn't have ended up getting married at 25 and having a first baby at 29, which in my social circles is like child bride level, mm. right? Um, I would have drifted. I yeah. can I can imagine. I can easily yeah. imagine how that would have happened. And I have enormous sympathy, therefore, for people who end up in so that situation. Sort of in your books, you're sort of addressing the parallel universe version of yourself. Yeah, kind to, of. To the extent that, they, that there are you know pe people here who resemble that. What, yeah. what do you think the effect is going to be on, on our society that we're going to end up having a serious contingent of women in their late 30s into their 40s, 50s, 60s, who ended up wanting to have kids who were not able to, and are then basically stuck looking down the barrel of like. 50 years kind of regretting this like permanent incredibly important and vital decision what 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 are we going to do with these women for it's not maybe the best way of putting it and also too i mean it's not a very nice it doesn't sound very nice but like what are these women going to do to us because i i do think that people take out you know like kind of petty revenges against societies that let them down what's that old like african uh euphemism about kids, like the, the child that doesn't get the, uh, the warmth of the village will burn it down. I, I do think that there will be a bit of a, a payback from a lot of these older women. Um, do, you have, do you have any idea of what this, this might look like? Because again, I think we are kind of hitting that inflection point. We're about to go over, over the wave on a lot of these issues. Um, I agree that I think they're going to be an important cohort to some extent in terms of voting behavior. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's, I think the most likely way in which women who don't end up having children will vote differently from women who do is that I think there is a kind of, I think one of the very distinctive qualities of progressive politics is that it, uh, what is often at play I think is basically misplaced caring instincts. So, for instance, regarding yeah. trans people as 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 fragile little babies, gender affirming care, desperately in need of our support, you can't say anything to them that will make them upset. All of this, like to me, screams just screams like you know treating those children like kindergartners, mm -hmm. right? I wrote a piece about this actually recently for um, Constant Kiss and Substack. Um, seeing in my uh, recognizing in my own voice when i talk to my toddler the same tone of voice that you will hear <laughs> not just women right men do this too but more so, but more so women yeah how progressive speak, speak to trans people how progressive mm. speak to you know like 20 year old albanian refugees <laughs> like th there are so many there are so yeah. many groups who end up being scooped up yeah. by the progressive cause and basically treated like babies um i think that is a feature um, I mean, w one thing to bear in mind, the risk of being too um, overstating the impact, there have always been a surprising proportion of people who don't have children. So most times in places you're talking maybe 10% of women don't have children for various reasons, infertility particularly, you're talking in ages of much greater disease burden can cause people to be infertile for other reasons, mm -hmm. just not getting married, things like after the First World War there was a huge lack of obviously young men Guys, particularly, yeah. yeah, and particularly because women tend to mate hypergamously, the upper classes had been disproportionately impacted by deaths in the First World War, and so you had this big cohort of women who yeah. never got married. So those numbers have always existed, and possibly they have always voted, well, imperialism women could vote, possibly have always voted a little bit differently. I think the difference is just 
size. So now we're talking maybe 25% of millennials won't have kids. Mm. And, and also a very crucial difference as well would be the fact that life expectancy wasn't anything like yes, then as it true. was now. So you, lots yeah. of those women yeah. who didn't have children in that 10% bracket, maybe they would have died when even in their, it might have died in their teens, their 20s, their 30s, very few of them would have been you know, hitting the yeah, 50s, 60s, having not Although normally the way the historical, I mean this is a tangent, but normally the way that historical um, life expectancies work is you have incredibly high infant mortality, particularly in the first six weeks of, of course, life. Yeah. And actually once you hit 40, you, you've mm. got a good chance of reaching yes. 70. Um, but yes, point taken. I mean, an interesting point as well, which people don't talk about as much, is what about all these men who never have kids? Because they're going to be probably roughly the same number. We don't know exactly. China's dealing with that right now. That's going to be nasty. Yes. So maybe you end up with this kind of, I mean, we know, for instance, that, that um, unmarried childless men commit more crime in general. You can actually see this across the, it's not just self-selection, it's obviously largely self-selection, but it's not just, because you can see this across the life cycle that men, after they have a child, there's a dip in their criminality mm. for quite a period, which then maybe returns, but then <laughs> they're too busy, yeah. and, then they, and, then it, and then they age out of committing any kind of violent crime at about 40. Sure. Um, so maybe we're going to expect to see more um, unrest among all of these men who mm. never, not only likely. never, we talk a lot about men who don't get sex, you know, incels, but what about men who don't have children? Mm. That's also, like having children is a very, has a very stabilizing effect on men. It literally lowers a man's testosterone. It's a status marker as well, I think, in, yeah. in many respects. But yeah, lots of men, I think they do, it, they do regard it as that. And it forces men to grow up yes, as yeah. well, and to have a stake in society, which I they're not currently motivated to do at all. I mean, I wonder if it goes a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier, in the, the, the risk of pre precisely because these people haven't had children, whether they're men or women, they've, not only do they feel a, a, a great sense of resentment, but they increasingly want, particularly if they're you know, sympathetic to you know, uh, like very you know, radical, fanatical forms of identity politics, to try and claim your children as their own. I mean, and as a, and as a, you know, a, mo a mother now, you must be worried about the prospects of educating your children in the current system. I mean, only, I think only recently the Telegraph broke, broke a story in which, um, what was it, that uh, children, like quite a significant number of children across the country were being um, permitted by teachers to identify as kittens and furries, furries kittens and horses, and like, that's on that's on the funny side of things. But it, I mean, it will be considerably less funny when they start trying to, you know, mutilate these children's bodies in order to put synthetic whiskers and synthetic hooves on onto onto them in order to species affirm them or whatever the new jargon will be in the coming years. I mean, you know, it sounds funny now, but very few people would have been predicting we'd be in the current situation now five years ago, and and we are. So I don't even think it's necessarily alarmist to say that these sorts of things could happen. Um, but th there definitely does seem to be this, this th there seems to be an innate drive in human beings to, as Evan said earlier, leave, leave a legacy in some kind of way. And if you can't do that through the genetic means, you will do it, as Evan also said, through the mimetic means. And this, this seems to be happening pretty strongly. And I, I do think that parents need to wake up to the way in which their, their children are being pretty relentlessly deprogrammed. Uh, sorry, that's the name of our show. P being pretty, pretty <laughs> relentlessly programmed. We're, we're, we're the firefighters, but uh, this, this must be something that you're worried about uh, for your own children. Yeah, and I don't know what we're going to do about schools, to be honest. And, the, <laughs> and this is a big, this is a big lacuna in the whole sort of conservative political project as well. What do we do about schools? Yes. Because you can, you can be taking your children to church, you can be teaching them whatever you want exactly. at home, but if they're spending 30, 40 hours a week, exactly. it, yeah, what do you do? Um, 
Well, as I was saying earlier, I've got a big family, and you know, I've been speaking to, to cousins and relatives and all the rest of it. And uh, at schools now, it's not, not only is this on the curriculum, it's sort of it's integrated into the school, school's practices as well. I mean, the, the number of teachers at schools that my you know, uh, younger members of my family are, are at at the moment, who, who are themselves identifying as non-binary and insisting that, you know, that. Uh, that, that the children affirm their identity. That's mm -hmm. the other very, very strange thing that's happening. Yeah. Like adults increasingly want, if, particularly if they've made bad decisions themselves, they, they seek your own children as a means of self-validation, insisting that they, they're called Teach, yeah. like Teach Smith or Teach Jackson instead of Mr. Smith or Mr. Jackson or we Mrs. Also, Smith or Mrs. Jackson. This is, this, is, this is going on. They put it on social media too, which yeah. is the even most bizarre thing. Like I would think that if you were like mm. actively trying to like politically proselytize to kids, like you would at least have the kind of self-preservation instinct not to go tell the parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, what if, I mean, it has to be a brave parent who will mm. who will actually object, yes. though, right? And I assume they just think they're not the cow into silence. They're not going to. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can do. You can homeschool, you can, I mean, there are like a handful of weird, the thing that my husband and, and, and I both say about this, we're not necessarily looking to send children to like our own hardcore indoctrination camp, right? Why not? What we're looking for, <laughs> what we're looking for at minimum is to basically get access to the schools that we had access to when mm. we were growing mm. up just by virtue of our age. You know, when they taught maths and history yeah, and that sort of thing. Isn't, yeah. isn't this Where they, they wouldn't myth? make you trans and they wouldn't make you a porn addict. Those are our two <laughs> Those requests. Are Those are the red lines. Uh, uh, yes. I don't know, don't, don't you think this is kind of like the myth of neutral institutions though? I think, I think that era has kind of passed us by. I think yes. it's either going to be Propaganda of one form or another. This is what yes, Tocqueville's no, yeah, uh, not to bring up Tocqueville again. This is what he's talking about when he talks about soft despotism, when people tune out and feel as though they, yeah. they, they shouldn't yeah. be playing a vigorous role in, for example, civic institutions with which you know yes. they just trust, the, the, as you say, the myth of neutrality and that that, that their children will get uh, can, they can be counted on getting an excellent education, but purely because well why would they not? You know that sort of passivity creeps in. It, that's that's why, when it becomes a risk. And we have seen in America, I mean, increasingly parents have been. In, inducted into yeah. the the Republican movement, more so particularly on issues like um, you, the transgenderism in places like Virginia, that arguably swung um, uh, the victory in 2021, I think it was, of Glenn Youngkin, Glenn yeah. Youngkin over Terry McAuliffe, because Terry McAuliffe said, well, why should this? Why should um, parents have a say over the education of their children? That sparked a backlash. Ron DeSantis is trying to make education more transparent in Florida. Miriam Cates in Britain has just proposed a, a, a new law, a private members' bill, which will make it obligatory, a legal obligation, not only for schools but also for third providers who are often providing these educational materials, to be in consultation with parents more often, so that giving parents some of that power back through, through legislation through legislative means. I mean, is that encouraging at all? Do you think this is going to have a legislative solution to the extent that it will have any solution? Or do you think it's something that we just all need to, we all need to get stuck in on a, on a local level? Um, Bandy together. I mean, it's, I hugely support and applaud the work that Miriam's doing. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a tough gig because, you know, hashtag 13 years, right? Like <laughs> these kids who are identifying as cats or whatever in schools, they've spent their entire lives yeah. under a conservative government point. Mm, who point. have done nothing but just give in at every stage, mm. maybe slow down very slightly. Either ignore, the progressive juggernaut, but ignore not much. or facilitate, basically. Yeah. yeah, so I think that trying to recapture those institutions is hard. I think I agree with you on you know the myth of the neutral political institution. In general, I think I agree with Ed West's thesis on this, which is that the reason that it felt 
to some extent in my childhood and a little bit earlier, you know, say like 1970 to 2000, as if neutral institutions existed and as if free speech was truly available to everyone was just because you had an ideological changing of the guard. It's because mm. you had the old Christian conservatism mm -hmm. fading out and you had the new whatever progressive ideology mm. fading in and there was a period when no one had full control mm. and so there was a period when there was some degree of Mm. freedom yeah, um, I think that's true um, which also does therefore suggest you know a political way forward which mm. is not to assume that I mean I think that there are tactical reasons to promote free speech as well as ideological ones to say well you know at the very minimum we should be allowed to actually come to the table sure free speech whichever. is always a minority value and yeah. we are in the minority making these uh, making these points it's very easy to make a a philosophical defense of it it's also a good strategy if you happen to be out of power mm -hmm. at any one moment um, but I think unfortunately we probably do need just either alternative institutions or more um, stronger attempts to recapture institutions well Louise it's, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you so much for, for coming on and uh, we must have you again sometime Evan thanks as ever you've been watching deprogrammed make sure to like subscribe Leave a comment if you wish, and we shall see you on the next one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.